feel your love, man. I really do. And also, we have more visitor, Marinette. Good to have you with us today. So I didn't forget you. I just okay. Let's see if this is going to work now. Is it too loud? It's okay. Okay, good deal. When I was a student, uh, one of our one of my classmates went to a seminary professor, and he said, uh, "Professor, I have a problem." He says, "What's your problem, son?" He says, "I'm not happy." I'm grouchy, I'm irritable, I don't take any joy in life, I don't like church, I don't like my pastor, I don't like my classes. And the professor stood back and he looked at him and he said, son, what happened to what happened to you? And the student went, excuse me? He says, well, when you met Jesus Christ, something happened to you. He said, yeah. Well, what happened to what happened to you? Have you ever met a grouchy believer? I know it's hard to believe in our church, but there are some... There are some grouchy people out there that claim the name of Jesus. I mean, they, they walk around looking like they haven't had dinner in six months. Or, you know, like their wife hasn't smiled at them in a year. Just grouchy-looking people going to church. Well, praise God, you know. <laughs> How is that possible? I mean, if you think about it, life is tough. Things happen. Cancer happens. Debt happens. Funerals happen. But what happened to the thing that changed us from who we were to who we are today. You see, dramatic events will always change our lives forever. Amen? When you get married, it changes your life forever. Amen? If you've ever been in a car accident, that will change your life forever. Sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally. Think about it. I have a question for you. What was the greatest change that happened to you as a person after you were born again? We talked about that phrase the other night, being born again, born that second time, not of flesh, not a human birth, but a supernatural, spiritual birth. What was the greatest change that happened to you when you were born again? Can you think about it right now? Maybe you stopped drinking. Maybe you stopped cussing. Maybe you stopped letting your wife beat you. Maybe that's what happened to you after you got saved. Maybe you uh, stopped cheating at work. Maybe you had a different change of attitude after you got born again. Now, I met a person once and said, I've been a believer for 20 years, and I haven't changed a, even an inch in those 20 years. You know what I said to him? Are you sure you were born again? Are you sure? Because you can be a church member, a church goer. You can be a faithful church member and not be born again. We talked about it last night. It doesn't matter whether you're in a Catholic church or a Baptist church or a Pentecostal church. It doesn't matter what church you're a member of. It matters whether or not you have experienced Jesus Christ in salvation. Amen, church? That's what makes the change. If you're going to church and you're unhappy and you're grumpy, that's what that kid was talking about to the professor. There are lots of seminary students who are not born-again believers. Isn't that hard to believe? What happens is you grow up in church and you go to summer camp and you, you love camp. And then maybe one summer you're a counselor at camp. And you love being able to help people and do good things for people. And that's why you go into ministry. A lot of the guys I started seminary with got a wonderful experience at summer camp. And they thought that's what ministry is about. No. Ministry is about being sold out to Jesus Christ wherever he takes you. And that's why when you date a woman, what's the purpose in dating? to find out if you're going to be fully committed to that woman for the rest of your life. Amen, gentlemen? When you started dating your wife, you were looking at all the important things. You know, can she cook? Does she, does she laugh at my jokes? Does she like the same things I like? And you married her anyways, didn't you? 
Yeah, I see those nudges. Yeah, you married her anyways, even though she didn't. My thing is this. When you are born again, there are three changes that happen to every born-again believer. This is how you know you've been born again. This is what happened to you that doesn't change. You can get sick, and it can take away some of your joy. You can have an accident, and it can take away some of your joy. But these changes, nothing can take away. You ready for it? 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Jesus gave you a clear conscience. Jesus gave you a clear conscience. That is one thing that cannot be changed by any circumstance in life. This happened to you, it cannot unhappen. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now, before you came to Jesus, you were guilty of sin. You had a guilty conscience, right? Everything you did, you felt that guilt about. That's what drove you to the Lord. Look at what it says, verse 13. And who will harm you if you are deeply committed to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. It's an amazing thought. If you suffer for being a believer, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be disturbed, but honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's within you. Anybody ever look at you and go, why do you have hope? The economy's crashing. The world's falling apart. We've had tornadoes. We've had excessive heat. We have had earthquakes. Now we've had a hurricane. Next we're going to have an ice storm. And then there's going to be an ice age and we're all going to be popsicles. <laughs> How is it that believers can have hope in the face of all of that? That's this. Be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. However, do this with gentleness and respect keeping your conscience clear so that when someone accuses you, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I want you to look at those verses. Very important today. What does it mean to have a clear conscience? You ever go to bed at night worried about the things you've said and done that day? Just nod your head because I know you have. Sometimes in the heat of the moment, you say something or you do something that you really shouldn't have said or done. And, and gentlemen, if you didn't know that you did it, believe me, your wife will remind you that you did it. And she'll remind you the next day and the next day and the next day too, right? Until you figure it out. That's because they're trying to help us. So if your wife is reminding you of your sins, just say thank you, baby. I appreciate that because she, she'll, she'll, she'll appreciate that too. Okay, let's take a look at this. Hmm, a clear conscience. First of all, look at, back up here in verse 15. Be ready to give a defense. I've told you what the word defense is. It's the word apologia. It's your Greek lesson for the day. Apologia. A reasoned explanation or a defense of your faith. If you are a believer in this scientific age, if you believe God created the heavens and the earth and not uh, creation, not molecules to man, not from the goo to the zoo to you, if you don't believe that nonsense, the world wants to know why. Why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Why not Buddha? Why not the Pope? Why not some other human authority? Why do you trust in this son of a carpenter who lived in Judea 2,000 years ago? There should be a reason. And here it is. Look at it. Give a defense or an explanation to anyone who asks for the reason. Here's what the word reason means. It's the word log on. Not, not like logging on the website, but you log on. It's a Greek word meaning to give an account, to give a full tally. How many of you work with numbers or money in your job? 
You ever work with money or numbers or accounts or figures? Okay, when you do a job, Brother Rich, you have to give a log on. You have to give an account of what you did, of how you spent that money, of what you've done. But this is not for how you spend it. It's the grounds for which you believe in Jesus. I've told you before, there are thousands of reasons to believe in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is an example of all of these prophecies made of who the Messiah would be. And we know that that book was sealed at least 300 years before Jesus because they translated it into Greek, the Septuagint. 72 Jews went down to Alexandria, Egypt, had a party, and translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. So if there's any doubts about what the Hebrews said, the Greeks said the same thing. That was 300 years before Jesus. It was locked up, sealed, tighter than a drum. Nobody changed the Old Testament prophecies. When Jesus came along, they knew what kind of Messiah they were looking for. Amen? If I ask you to give me five prophecies today, five prophecies from the Old Testament that tell us who Jesus would be, just think for a second. Could I come up with five prophecies about the Messiah? Okay, you think, okay, I know one. He was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, uh, of Judea, right? That's one. So where was Jesus born? Bethlehem of Judea. Okay, he was supposed to be born of a virgin. I love this one. All of these churches today in America say, oh, the word is not for a virgin. Wait a second, what? I went to a Presbyterian pastor that Marilyn used to work for, and I said, but brother, it says virgin. Oh, no, no. It says the word Bethula. That's the Hebrew word. He said, it says Bethula. That's just a young woman. I said, no, brother, you're wrong. This pastor was older than me. And he had gotten all his education at, at a prestigious Presbyterian seminary. I said, look at your text again. It's the word Alma. The word Alma is a virgin. Well, how do you know that? Well, go grab the Septuagint. The Septuagint says in Greek, virgin, never been touched by a man. You see, they want to take away the virgin birth. Then they could explain Jesus away. But if both the Hebrew and the Greek say she was a virgin, then what was she? Say the word with me. She was a virgin. That's right. That's two prophecies just right there. How many virgins do you know went to Bethlehem to give birth to a baby? Nah, I know one. That's the type of account. That's the type of logon we're supposed to give the world. We're not supposed to have blind faith. We're supposed to have reasons why we believe Jesus is the Messiah. You know what apologetics is? Apologetics is something near and dear to my heart. It's the defense of the Christian message, the defense of the faith. When they say, well, what about dinosaurs? I say, what about dinosaurs? They were hanging out in the Garden of Eden, and Adam said, that's a big lizard, that's a medium-sized lizard, that's a small lizard. They got their names from Adam. Well, why don't we see them today? Did you guys miss the flood? Hello, the dinosaurs didn't get on the ark. The ones that did get on the ark were a little bit smaller, they were eggs, they show up later. You know when the last dinosaur died? They haven't. They're still around. The last velociraptor was killed in 1770 in France. Did you know that? Have you heard of the Dinosaur Chronicles? They are, the they are the records of these dinosaurs that were found in Europe throughout the 1600s, 1700s. And you know what? They were seen. They were recorded. Their descriptions were written down a long time ago, and nobody changed them. Isn't it convenient how scientists tend to ignore that? You know why they ignore it? Because if there were velociraptors running around in 1770 in France, then there was no mass extinction. There was no mass killing off by an asteroid. 
Some of them things got on the ark and they survived. See, it messes the scientists up when you give them facts. They prefer theories that they don't have to defend. If you're going to have a clear conscience, you have to know why you believe what you believe. And go on down a bit more. It says this, but if you're going to do this defense, if you're going to deal with people who are not believers and you're going to tell them the truth, you have to do it with gentleness and respect. This is hard. This is hard for me because I'm a very fiery person. I know that's hard to believe, but I get excited about things. And when I start debating someone who's a scientist or someone who's not, I get a little bit wound up. Because they start telling me what they think, and I start telling them what I know, and I get a little bit carried away. Is that okay? Just say amen. Oh, this side doesn't believe it. You should get wound up when anybody questions the word of God. You know why? Because that word of God is how you know that you're saved. And if they're questioning the word of God, they're questioning your ability to be saved. And that would wind me up. Should wind you up too. But here's the thing. We have to come to them with humility and respect. Because God wants us to go to them lovingly, gently. Because they're blind. They're deaf. They can't see. They are still locked into that sinful attitude before coming to Christ. Remember, before you're born again, you're dead. You're like a zombie. You're the walking dead. You have no life in you until Christ breathes life into you. Until the Holy Spirit indwells you. That's what we were doing last night, the indwelling spirit. Until the Holy Spirit indwells you, you have no medium through which to receive the word of God fully. The Holy Spirit is that translator. He's the one that brings that knowledge to us. So when we're talking to an unbeliever, even if they're 30, 40, 50 years old, you're still talking to a baby. You're talking to someone who doesn't even understand a solid language. So if we're going to give our reasons, they have to be valid, true, dependable reasons that we can point to in the Word of God, and we have to do it gently, just like you're teaching a child. You know, I've been teaching Nicole since the time she was, you know, there, about the Word of God. And I started with the very simple things when she was smaller, and now as she gets older, we talk more and more about apologetics, we talk about science, we talk about history and prophecy, and the older she gets, the more I'm going to teach her. I want her to be fully equipped and fully armed to take on anybody that questions her faith. You see, that's what comes from a clear conscience. I know I'm right. And I know what you're thinking. Pastor, that makes you very narrow-minded if you think you're right. You're right. I am narrow-minded. But when you're right, you can afford to be narrow-minded. Did y'all get that one? If Jesus is Lord and there's no other way to heaven... It's okay to be narrow-minded because there's only one Savior. And I won't accept anybody else's explanation or reasons or methods because they're not true. They're not real. They can't be. This clear conscience is a clear conscience from guilt. When you were a sinner, when you were opposed to Christ, when you wanted to do things your own way, you were ashamed of yourself because you were trying to live your own life, thinking your own thoughts, making your own plans. I told you before, now that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, now that the Holy Spirit dwells you, you are not a sinner. You are a saint, one who is set apart, set apart from destruction, set apart unto God. What a blessed place to be a saint. Okay, now, do saints sin? Yes, we covered that last night. But a saint who sins is not a sinner. A saint who sins is a naughty child that needs to get spanked and then set back on the right course of action again, Amen. See, it's important. We don't make excuses for our sin. The Father reprimands us, we repent, and then we go forward in that life. 
That's what happened to you. You were given a clear conscience. But look at 1 Peter 3, 18 through 21. Jesus also gave you a powerful message to go along with your clear conscience. Now you're set free from guilt. Now you know who you are in Christ. Now you have a powerful, powerful message. Before you got saved, all you could talk about is your own self-righteousness, your own deeds, your own good works. That's all you could talk about. That's all you had. Now you can proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring to you God, after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. In that state, he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is, eight people were saved through water. Now, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What an amazing set of passages. What an amazing set of passages. Because if you go back to it, look right up at verse 19. In that state, in that risen state, he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, that verse right there, has bothered a lot of people. That verse right there has led to a lot of bad theology, a lot of bad thinking. You know what some people say? They say, oh, well, pastor, look at this verse. He made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Some of your translations might say he preached to those in prison. If you have a King James, maybe it says it preached. This word proclamation is just that. It means to make an announcement, to make an announcement. What did Jesus have to announce. Well, what did he announce? I'll tell you what he announced. Colossians 2.15 says this. You should write this down. You should look this up. You should be sure this is right. Because that verse right there, that is going to cause you trouble when you get to other people of other denominations because they have heard a pastor preach a message and they haven't looked it up. They have not studied it. And because they have not, they have wrong thinking. Very dangerous. Always, always go to the word. Okay. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus Christ. Now, the Romans had a, had a way of doing things. When they defeated an army, they would strip all the soldiers completely naked, take off their armor, take away their weapons, take away their shields, and they would drive them, drive them like dogs before them into the city. And the thing was to have these Soldiers from whatever city stumbling before them, naked, beaten, cut up, bruised, especially their commanding officers, especially their generals and their captains. And the Romans would drive them in to show their utter defeat, their utter humiliation. You see, in the, old, in the ancient world, there was nothing more embarrassing than being naked. Being naked was an embarrassment, not because they weren't in good shape, because the Greeks used to exercise naked. That's what gymnasium means, <laughs> I mean, they would exercise in the nude because they were proud of their bodies. But to be put on display without your weapons, without your body armor, without your defensiveness, it showed that you were utterly, completely defeated. You were defenseless. You had no way to protect yourself. Great embarrassment. This is what Jesus did to all of the demons in hell. He utterly, completely defeated them. Do you realize that Satan lost at the cross? Satan has no power. His power was destroyed at the cross. 
That's important. It's not a battle between Jesus and the devil. The devil lost. What power does the devil have? He has the power of a lie. He has the power to make you think that he still has authority, that he still has strength, that he still has ability. Over the believer, Satan has no power at all. The devil didn't make you do it, sweetheart. You did it because you wanted to. You just blamed it on him. Now think about this. It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So what proclamation could Jesus make to these spirits? Well, let's take a look at who these spirits are. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took them as their wives, any that they chose. Now the Nephilim, sometimes translated other ways, were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now this is going to be controversial. I want you to go home and get a commentary. I want you to look this up. To the best of my ability to research this, uh, this is what I have been taught, and this is what I believe after a lot of research. In the ancient days, after the time of Noah, when men began to fill the earth, there were those angelic beings. The, the words in Hebrew always refer to angelic beings. They did see the beauty of earthly women, and they did somehow cast off that position in heaven, that place appointed to them. Remember, the angels are appointed as servants of God, as messengers, angelos, messengers. They're appointed to that place, and they are not to engage in physical coupling. They're not to engage in sex. They're not to do that. That's not their place. They are not to reproduce. That's not their given place. In fact, later when they said, uh, in heaven, who's... who's a wife is she going to be? He says, in heaven, we will be like the angels, neither marrying nor given in marriage. The angels were not to do that. But some cast off that, came to the earth, and had relationships with earthly women. Now, this is like a creepy science fiction thing, but believe me, this is where I have come to after a lot of research. If you disagree with me, that's cool. That's all good. There's the whole godly line of Seth thing that some people go to. I just can't find it in my research. If you do come across some good, good research to go against this, please show me, because I'm still a student of the Bible, amen? I'm still wanting to learn. But understand, these spirits, these angels left their proper place, and God punished them. 2 Peter 2, 4 says this, If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, talking about this episode in Genesis, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's echoed in Jude 1.6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What did Jesus proclaim to these demons who were locked in their chains? He walked into hell to these demons and darts. He says, you lose because I am risen again. Jesus proclaimed his victory over those spirits, those demons that rebelled against the will of God the Father. They, he, he proclaimed the victory. He was not proclaiming a chance for them to be saved. It's ridiculous. Once you are in chains of darkness, you don't get out. Once you go to hell, baby, there is no purgatory. There is no second chance. You know, the, the Catholic Church used to teach that you could give money 
in the collection box. And it says, as the coin in the bucket rings, a soul from Purgatory Springs. Beautiful little ditty, but not true. Once you are in hell, you stay in hell. Once you lose, you lose for eternity. And that is not a pleasant thing to say. I don't like saying that. But if you die in your sins, there's no way to get you out of hell. These demons committed to eternal chains of darkness remain there. But Jesus simply proclaimed. He didn't preach to them any message of hope. He simply said, it is done. You are defeated. You lose. Your power is broken. He was simply making a proclamation. And that's, that's exactly what he's made in us. He has made a proclamation through us to the world that he is Lord, that he is the Savior, that he is the only hope we have. What message could be more powerful that denominations don't matter, church names don't matter, church membership doesn't matter. What matters is your relationship to Jesus Christ. And for a long time, the Catholic Church taught that to be a member of the church was to be saved. In fact, if you go back to the papal writings that have never been overturned, it still says, if you are not a member of the Catholic Church, you don't make it into heaven. All the rest of us are buggered. We're dead. That's what it says in the official writings of the Catholic Church. There's no hope for a non-Catholic. I got news for you. Jesus Christ never read that, never wrote that. He said, whosoever believes in me, I will never cast out. Never leave, never forsake. And it's really important that you understand how powerful this message is. So important was this message that Jesus descended into hell before the demons who rebelled against the Father. He says, you're defeated. You lose. That's how important that message is, how powerful it is. Now he says this. He says there was only a few, eight people who were saved through water. Only eight people got off the ark. So you know what? We're all relatives. Okay, we're all related to the same eight people that got off the ark. Amen. No matter what country you were born in, what color your skin is, doesn't matter what language you speak originally, we are all family. And that's what holds GGCF together. We are family in Jesus Christ. Now it says this, baptism which corresponds to this, this deliverance through water, now saves you not by the removal of filth, but by the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Why do we baptize by immersion? One, Jesus was baptized by immersion, not because he needed it, but so that he would set the example for us. That example of being buried with Christ, raised to a newness of life, this is our pledge to the community of faith that we're going to walk after Jesus. I can take my wife to a justice of the peace, and I can get married to her, and legally we're married in the eyes of the state, and I cannot wear a wedding ring, which would get me killed, but I can walk around and pretend I'm just like the world. I'm single. See, look at me, no wedding ring. Legally I'm still married. But I'm not ashamed of my marriage, amen? I'm not ashamed of my wife. She's an amazing woman. Y'all going to get tired of hearing that after about 20 years. But until then, don't worry about it. Okay, I'm setting an example here. If you get a good message, you need to preach it. If God has blessed you with a good wife, you need to preach it. If God has blessed, ladies, if God has blessed you with a husband that is not a slime bag, please preach it. Please let every woman know, yes, my husband's not perfect. Yes, he's a slob, but yes, I love him anyways. Okay? It would do so much for our self-esteem if you would say that. So ladies, just pray about it and commit to it and do it. Anyways, this pledge of a good conscience found in 1 Peter 2.16. Live as people who are free, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That is your pledge, to live out loud as a Christian, to proclaim that message of Jesus until he comes again. That's how we wear the wedding ring of our relationship to Christ. We proclaim that message and nothing else. You see, that's a change that can't disappear from you no matter what you go through. I've known people on their deathbed in hospitals dying after their fourth round of cancer, and all the nurses in the hospital can do nothing but praise that person. You know what's amazing? They've never lost heart. They are suffering, but they keep talking about Jesus. They have really bad days, and they get sick, but they keep looking to Christ. That's keeping a good conscience. That's proclaiming a bold message until the day that Jesus comes back. All right, let's finish this thing up. 1 Peter 3, 22. Third thing you get, that third thing that comes from encountering Jesus. He gives you his full authority. Now look at that for a second. You know Jesus has power, amen, because we just looked at it. He triumphed over the demons in hell. He has all that power. He proclaimed his, his, his deliverance. It says now in verse 22, now that he has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. All of creation is subject to Jesus Christ. But I told you that you have his full authority. What do I base that on? Well, let me show you. Luke 10, 17 through 20. Luke 10, 17 through 20. We have exactly the same authority and the same power that Jesus Christ has. And if he has complete authority, then so do we. Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here's the thing. If you're Paris Hilton, you're not going to go live in a $20 a week apartment in some broke down part of Hoboken, New Jersey, you're going to live in a penthouse as befits your name and your status, amen? Now, if we are the children of the king, if we have the authority of Jesus Christ, we have this bold message, this clear conscience, why do we live like bust down, broke old people on welfare? Why do we do that? Why do we walk through life with our back bent and our head sagging down and, and, oh, I'm just getting through this day and, oh, nobody loves me and no one cares for me. Oh, I can't make a difference in the world. I don't have the right education or I'm not good looking enough or my belly's too big or, you know, whatever. It's one of my days right there. Anyways, here's the thing. If we have a clear conscience, if we have that full authority and that powerful message of the cross, the very message that Jesus descended into hell to preach, why do we live like bust-down people that don't have any influence in our world? Why do we live that way? You know why? Because we're too afraid that people will call us arrogant. I'm not arrogant. I just happen to be the child of a king. And I'm not going to apologize for being joint heirs with Christ. I'm not going to apologize for having a message of salvation. And if I come across somebody who's Buddhist or Mormon or Jehovah's Witnesses, too bad for them because I'm going to be up all over them because I want them to have the same thing I do. Because the only reason I have this authority and this conscience and this power is because Christ saved me. 
I didn't do anything to earn it. He gave it to me. But now that I've got it, I'm going to use it. I'm going to live like it. I mean, I can't even imagine a woman who's beautiful or a man who's muscular and powerful. I can't imagine them wearing dumpy clothes and concealing their looks. I can't imagine that. You know why? Because they work too hard to get what they've got. Now, I didn't work to become what I am. Christ gave that to me, but I'm still going to rejoice in it, amen? Here's the thing. When you walk out of here, you should walk out with your head high. When you see somebody who says, oh, you know, I, I went this morning to uh, my national consciousness meeting, and we talked about how great we are. You know, you need to say, I need to talk to you for a minute. In fact, I was talking uh, to Dr. J, and he was saying how in, in uh, India, you know, you always see them put their hands together, and they say, namaste. You know what namaste means? The God in me greets the God in you. Now I'm thinking, okay, you got an issue right there, because one thing, you ain't God, buddy. And when we see that, it's a physical expression of how a non-Christian world tries to build themselves up. They try to see themselves as being godlike. We're not godlike, we're just indwelt by God. But if they can greet each other that way, we should have that same attitude. I have something important to give you. I have something important to tell you, and it's for your own life that you should listen to me. See, that's what I would have our church be, just so proud of Jesus Christ that we're willing at any moment to give that testimony, to give that defense, that reason for the faith that's within us. Amen? That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be starting something very new very soon. Yes, we have mighty men coming up, the Ten Commandments for God's men. We're going to have prayer meeting on Tuesday nights, every Tuesday night, 6.30 to 7.30. We're going to have that because we're going to prepare ourselves. We're going to disciple ourselves, train ourselves up. Then, starting this fall, we're going to have discipleship on Sunday morning at 9.15. Ooh, scary, huh? Yeah, show up on time. Early even. Why do we do that? Why do we want to come early to church and disciple ourselves so that we know the message so that we maintain that clear conscience, so that we can learn to exercise the authority invested in us by Jesus Christ. So do you know that something real has happened to you? Last thing, do you really know that something real has happened to you? Because there's a lot of people in church that are not sure. One, is your conscience clear towards God and to those around you, or do you still have guilt in your conscience? If your guilty conscience is because you never came to Jesus, then what you need to do today, you need to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I am a sinner, and I have tried to be religious, and I have tried to be right, but I can't do it. I am just a busted-down old slave to sin. Jesus set me free. But now if you're a saint, if you're a saint and you got caught up in sinful thinking, sinful behavior, you know, it says in the Scriptures that, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. That is not for unbelievers. That is for believers, guys. Believers need to get cleaned up too. Believers can muddy up their house, you know. I mean, ladies, if your husband came in the house in muddy old work boots and was stomping through the house and walking on your white carpet and on your nice clean floors, what would you do after you beat him? Bad. Unconscious. You'd go back and clean the house, right? When you realize you've got mud in your temple because of walking in the world and getting the world's attitudes, you need to clean it up, and the only one that can do that is Jesus Christ. So, is your conscience clear? If so, you're good to go. If not, you know what to do. Now, two, does the message of your life reflect God's glory or your temporary achievements? 
A lot of people in church like to talk about what they know, what, the, what degrees they have, what skills they have, what abilities they have. God don't care about your skills. God don't care about your abilities. God don't care about your degree. Whether you're a Ph of D or no D, it's okay in God's sight. It's all good. Okay, a long time ago, we didn't send our preachers to seminaries. We schooled them up in the word. We put them to work in the church, and they wound up in the pulpit, and it worked really good for 2,000 years, didn't it, Ken? Amen. So here's the thing. You know, is the message of your life about how good God is or how really great you are? Because if it's all about you, you need to reexamine your walk with the Lord. If it's about him, be proud. Proclaim that message. Last. Now, do you live with the bold sense of God's authority in your life, or are you still kind of shy and timid and powerless? If you are shy and timid and powerless, it's because you have not given God permission to put you in the uncomfortable places of life where you have to step out, where you have to be the preacher, you have to be the pastor, you have to be the ambassador that carries the message of Christ. And you know you can do that. I've seen you in Bible studies. I know the wisdom that God has given you and built into you. You need to be able to do that out in the world and not care what the world says. Because they're not going to want to hear it. But you know what? There's somebody out there that God is preparing to receive the gospel through you. And you need to be willing to say it so they can hear it and they can respond to Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day and this time. God, thank you that you have done such amazing work in us. Father, for so many believers, it's as if you never touched them. For so many church people, it's as if they have never encountered you. God, today I pray that you would touch all of our hearts. That, Lord, we would know what happened to us. And Father God, if along the way we have lost our passion, we have lost our power, we have given into the world, that we've given into doubts, or we've given into Satan's whisperings in our ears, Father, this day we proclaim that we are your children. God, we proclaim that we have the authority of Christ to say no to Satan and to preach the message. God, we have the ability to look in your word and proclaim boldly that you triumphed at the cross, that there's only one way to heaven and you are it. And God, today, we can stand here and say, I am guiltless. I am cleansed by the blood of Christ. I am free from my past. It cannot hold me down. It cannot tie me back. And Jesus, today, we want to be people that shine as bright as the sun in a world that is very dark and very dank. So, Father, I just pray today in Jesus' name that we would all be willing to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.